What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Schwan Humes for episode 222 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And we have a couple of different things to talk about today, including the fights from this past weekend and previewing the fights this weekend. But before we do that, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. You can find us across all of our platforms, first and foremost at MMARatings.net and .com, as well as check us out on Instagram and Twitter at MMARatingsNet in both spaces. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Myself, you can hit me at rgarcia underscore sports, and Schwan, you can hit him up at Black Jordan Breen. So, Schwan, why should everybody know how you're doing? Not bad. Actually, uh, just got home like 45 minutes ago, had a was training some kids, so just got back in a little bit. How, how did the uh, train? You were talking about kids not being able to shoot today, I saw. Yeah, because a lot of them can't. There's a, I'm actually training. I was coaching fall ball for about six weeks, and then three of the girls who I coached wanted to uh, start working out with me because then one girl started working out with me. She started playing better, so the other two were like, oh, well, let's see what's up. But I told them all, I'm like, if y'all just shoot 40% from the field, not 40% from three, 40% from the field, you're probably – top seven shooters in your entire high school because they cannot shoot at all. It is terrible. So it's, you know, most of the kids I train, they're kind of, they're, they're not really tall. They're not really big and they're not really athletic. Like two of my kids were not super athletic. So like a lot of people make their reputation because they coached a five, not a six foot tall girl or a six foot seven guy. And they got him 20 points a game. And I'm like, they're the fastest and biggest kids in the school. That's not that hard. Like one of my daughters wasn't one of the fastest people in her own family. And she was still averaging 14 and 10 against good competition. So like when somebody tells me, oh, that kid, this other kid, he got 14 and 10. I'm like six foot four and the fastest kid in the district. They should be getting like 20 and 20. But, you know. Is AAU making the game worse or is it making the game better? I don't say it makes it better because you're forced to play better competition. So you understand where you're at because you have to be able to perform against good kids. And a lot of kids play in weak districts in high school. So they think they're really good. They go into summer. They can't average nine points a game. It makes it worse because in AAU, they're not developing anybody. Most most kids who go out there aren't being developed, especially on the girls side. They got girls who are playing national schedules who can't dribble with their head up and can't make a wide open 10 footer. How is that possible? But they're good athletes. So you, mostly the kids aren't getting developed. And I, I just got done training a kid uh, over the summer for about eight months. And he his kid his team plays a high level AAU schedule. And he was telling me he's like it's all the it's like all the kids are getting worse. They're playing a bunch of, bunch of games, but they can't do anything. He goes, I'm not getting worse because you know me and you are working out, so my game is getting better. But a lot of kids who were playing at a certain level three months ago are playing way below it. Everybody who, who's not elite is playing worse. And everybody who's like on that borderline, you know, they're not they're not getting any better because they're just playing too much. They don't have enough time to actually work on their skill set. Only the really elite kids get to. So there's a whole segment of kids that aren't working on the game at all. They're just playing five games a weekend and progressively getting worse as they play it. It's funny because I feel like that was the narrative even back when I was in high school. That kid that AAU is making the game overall worse. But um, you know, that's, that was what 20, 25 years ago. If you ever have a kid who plays basketball early on, get someone teaching the fundamentals and teach them how to make the right plays and teach them how to like not run plays, but actually play the game. Because as they get older, maybe 
first it won't it won't be noticeable, but as they get into the teens and into higher up, you'll start seeing a separation between them and everybody else because everybody else knows how to plays and knows how to score. They don't actually know how to play basketball, and your kid will always find a spot because they know how to play the game as long as they understand how it works. There's a lot of kids who, unless they're six foot, if they weren't six foot seven, they couldn't even be on a basketball court. They're terrible, and there's a lot of kids who are five foot seven. If they knew how to play, they could be on one because they don't. They have no chance of making a team. True that, sir. But let's hop into some combat sports action. And let's start with Max Holloway's win over Yair Rodriguez on Saturday. It was a pretty, pretty clear victory. Yair had some had, had some spots, but he was unable to get the job done. What were some of your thoughts on overall on what you saw between these two men in the main event? Uh, the biggest thing is, I mean, it's gutsy on Max's part. He took on a, a guy who's dangerous, but the thing about it was it wasn't really a, a, t- a close fight in on paper or even in the actual cage. Two things made it close. Max is a volume puncher. He's a volume striker. A lot of his success isn't built on his pure skill. His success is built on the fact that he can throw a lot and he can take a lot of punishment. As long as he can take the punishment and throw volume, he can start making adjustments. And once he's found his groove, he can start out slicking you. He can start countering you. But the thing about it is, He's going to take a certain amount of punishment in every single fight he takes. Actually, they interviewed Alex Volkanovsky about this, and and Conor McGregor mentioned it. They say you're the best boxer in MMA, but you get hit so often. There's no way you're the best boxer in MMA when you're taking, you know, over 100, 130 strikes every single fight. Part of that's because he's never been knocked out. Part of that's because of his style. No matter how good defensively you are, if you're coming forward throwing volume, you're going to get hit, and you're going to get hit a lot. And Max Holloway's the biggest part of his success is his durability and his cardio. If either one of those things shades back, he becomes ineffective. Um, the big advantage for him is he does have some skills, and because he does that, he can make adjustments and start ramping these up and making, you know, cutting corners, getting angles, pivoting out, throwing head and body combinations, using his jab actively. He he, he knows how to probe and find openings, but. Even with all that, he's always coming forward. He's always throwing volume, which means he's going to get hit. He's fighting Yari Rodriguez, who's not really a structured fighter himself. He's improved a little bit, but his biggest weapon is athleticism and his big spots of offense. He's going to land him against somebody like Max Holloway. So even though Max Holloway is a much better fighter, because of the strategical limitations of his style, he's forced to take a certain amount of punishment. And I think that's why he grappled a little bit more than than I think he, he would have against somebody else, because he understood the threat that was in front of him with Yair's dynamic kind of athleticism. Any one of those, there's a, there's a couple shots Yair hit him with that would have knocked anybody else out. That Max purely navigated because of his chin. So it showed me that he's still top tier, or at least better than everybody else. But it also showed me that a he recognizes his chin isn't what it used to be, and b once that goes, um, a lot of the what makes him such an, um, a fan favorite is going to go with it. He he knows he can't take the punishment he used to. And as a result, he's going to have to start making some some adjustments if he has any hopes of getting the title back, which I don't think he will. So here's my question about that, because there's a lot of people talking about the grappling that Max kind of pulled out that, you know, a lot of us aren't really that used to seeing him using. How I'm not going to say how much longer do we have of enjoying Max at this level, but I think he's 29, maybe 30 at the very oldest. But he's taken a lot of damage over these years. Do you think we're at the point now where we are going to begin to see a decline of Max Holloway's abilities and his chin, per se, based on all the damage that he's taken? 
I think you've already seen a decline because when he fought, it's a problem Max Holloway has is he's very technical and in general he can make adjustments when he outclasses somebody. Like when he's got a lead and the guy can't match him, you'll see him start adding things on. That's not really an adjustment. That's you showing a different level because now you've got the comfort to start opening up. Oh, I know you can't hurt me. Well, now I'm going to counterpunch a little bit. Or I'm going to work the head and body. Or now I know I'm faster than you. Well, now I'll, I'll use this and that. When he's got an advantage, he he adds on layers. But if you watch the fight with Volkanovski, if you watch most of the fights he's lost, he's not really good at making adjustments in fights unless he can ramp up his volume and get you moving backwards. Once that happens, he can start making reads because he's taking away half of yours by putting you on the back foot. When he fought Volkanovski and Volkanovski started winning in the second fight, he was unable to ramp up his volume. He he was still he made when Volkanovski adjusted to what he did. There was no other adjustment for Max Holloway, and he couldn't outvolume, and he couldn't bully him, and he couldn't exchange shot for shot. He couldn't take it anymore. So then he had to be more defensively disciplined and more careful in how he set up his strikes and what he let go because he could no longer just take whatever came back at him. When he fought Jose Aldo, Aldo unloaded on him. He took every single shot full force and unloaded on and unloaded on Aldo. When Ortega landed big bombs, he just threw back and drowned him in volume. When Volkanovski started landing big bombs on him. You didn't see the same pace. You didn't see the same. You didn't see the same up of his physicality. He he realizes he doesn't. To me, he he realizes he's not the same guy. So now he's gonna have to start exploring other aspects of his skill set so that he can still compete at the highest level. If he had to just strictly strike with Yair and he couldn't take him down, I'm not saying he doesn't beat him. I'm saying that fight gets real real close. There's a reason he took him down. It's not just because it's a hole in his game. There's a reason he took him down. If Yair couldn't threaten him on the ground, threaten him on the feet, he wouldn't have taken him down. Like Calvin Cater, he could have done the same thing to Calvin Cater. Why didn't he? Because he he had Calvin Cater under complete control. He did it against Yair because Yair's got this habit of landing Hail Mary shots, and he knows that he can't take too many of those. So let me just eliminate that completely, get him on the ground, beat him up, wear him down, take some of the spring out of his step. I'm not going to just ramp up my volume because I don't know if I can take everything that's come back. He's already slowed down. After the Poirier fight, and after that time where he didn't make a weight with Khabib, I had I've been mentioning concerns about his his long term health and long term performance since the uh, Pettis fight. I really think he's trending downwards. It's just that he's so good and he's so far ahead of most people that it's going to take a special fighter to expose it. But it was exposed against Volkanovski. It was exposed against Dustin Poirier. It's just like I said, he didn't get knocked out, so people don't think it's dramatic because his chin hasn't gone completely. They don't notice it. But he's not pushing guys the way he used to. And he's being a little bit more meticulous, more so than he used to. He used to just turn it up from 6 to a 10 and run you over. Now he's going from a 6 to a 7, checking around 7.5, slowly moving up. Oh, you can't handle it? Okay, now I'll ramp it up. But until he knows you can't handle it, he ain't taking those chances anymore. So if he, because Dana White mentioned that that third Volkanovski fight is basically on the table. I want to talk about that first before we mention some other ideas around him. But how do you think that third fight goes? I, I think that if they were to fight again, let's say uh, May of next year, something like that, since, since it's November already, do you think we've seen enough in Max that the fight goes differently or do we are we walking into a situation where Volkanovski maybe steamrolls him and sends him on that decline sooner rather than later? I I haven't seen enough because what I've seen him do against Calvin Cater he can't do against Volkanovski. Calvin Cater is easy to hit and defensively limited 
and he's offensively limited as far as his footwork and his setups. Volkanovski's already better than him. He's got a better chin. He's taking less punishment. He's better defensively. He's better offensively. He's better on the counter. He's not going to do that against Calvin Cater. Um, Volkanovski maybe isn't as dynamic an athlete as Yair Rodriguez, but he's more physical. I don't believe that that um, Max can take him down and maul him and control him the same way he controlled Yair Rodriguez. I don't. I don't see that happening. I don't think that's actually possible for him to do so. So what I've seen from him in these two fights doesn't make me think he's going to be able to replicate that against Volkanovski, who's bigger and stronger than both fighters, who's more durable and more physical than both fighters, and who's actually more well-rounded than most fighters. The biggest issue with Max is usually he has a clear advantage over people in certain aspects. The cardio is an advantage. The volume is an advantage. The durability is an advantage. He's a better grappler. He's a better striker. Against Volkanovski, he doesn't have clear advantages. And once he doesn't have clear advantages, he never looks as dominant as he used to. Even against Conor McGregor, I know it was an old fight, but Conor was young too. He didn't have clear advantages over Conor, like big canyon-sized advantages. And he didn't look nearly as dynamic. And people are like, well, he was just learning his craft. He was learning his craft. But the fact of the matter is, guys he's beat, he's had huge advantages over in durability, in volume, in activity, and in skill set. The guys he's had the hardest fights against, or the guys he struggled with, having guys who've been able to have who had advantages over him, or got technically or physically. Dustin Poirier was probably a better boxer and a harder hitter. Loss. Conor McGregor was able to match the size and the length and the strength. Maybe not the volume, but he could at least contain him and control him in spots. Loss. He fought Volkanovski, a guy who could who had similar durability, comparable skills, and and more physicality. Loss. Even the second fight was compet was even they say it was for Max. It wasn't a dominant, dominant performance. The guys he beat, Anthony Pettis, doesn't really know how to strike. He's an attribute striker, not a technical one. Ortega is a guy who fights in spots with big moments. Frankie Edgar, a smaller fighter, a diminished fighter who doesn't have as good a chin, can't fight at pace anymore, and um, isn't really a super technical striker. You know, you start going through the Charles Oliveira at 45, not durable. Can't fight a pace. Like, start looking through his wins, and they're impressive, but they're guys who had huge holes he could exploit. Jose Aldo can't fight a pace. Great skill set, but can't fight a pace. So when the, when those holes aren't there, he's never as dominant. And against Volkanovski, those holes won't be there. So how is he going to control the pace? How is he going to take him down? How is he going to control him? I don't know. I've never seen that version of Max, and I don't know that version of Max exists. So before we move on to the next next topic from Saturday's fights, I want to ask one question because Howie brought up an interesting point. He does have a win over Charles Oliveira. So he painted the picture that if Oliveira was to defeat Dustin Poirier, that he thinks he wants to throw his name into that sweepstakes to fight Oliveira for the 155-pound title. How do you think that fight goes now, seeing how compared to when they fought what was that, five years ago? And it wasn't even really a real fight because um, Oliveira injured his neck or something like that, and he was called out pretty quickly. How do you yeah. think that was this time around? To me, Oliveira's a – he's got less mileage on him due to the fact that he used to go so early. He's taken less punishment. I mean, Max has absorbed thousands of strikes. Um, Oliveira's actually improved. I mean, he's still fundamentally the base, same fighter, but defensively he's better. Offensively, he's sharper, so he didn't leave himself as open. And because his defense has gotten better, when he gets rocked or hurt, he's able to navigate that and, and counter, whether, whether it's with his grappling or his striking. So he's actually improved. 
I don't think at 55, when Holloway, because if Holloway did it, he'd move right up. He doesn't have big power at 55. You know, he landed a lot on Dustin Poirier, and I don't remember, except for the body work, I don't really remember him slowing Dustin Poirier down or keeping Dustin Poirier off him. Charles Oliveira hits hard at that weight class. Charles Oliveira is physically dynamic and has a lot of physicality in that weight class. Um, I don't, if Holloway worked his way up and kind of conditioned himself and took some time, maybe those physical advantages wouldn't be as great. But if he just jumps right up, there's a lot of 55ers who can physically bully him and move him around. And last time he was at 55, every time he got touched, we're not used to seeing Holloway marked up after fights. When he fought Dustin Poirier, he looked like he had been in a fight. His face was all marked up. And you're not used to seeing that. He took shots from Jose Aldo like it was nothing. He didn't take shots from Dustin Poirier like it was nothing. And he won't take shots from Oliveira like it's nothing, or Chandler, or Gaethje, or McGregor. Um, I mean, if, if there's a storyline in it. But at this at this stage, I don't know. I see him beating Oliveira. I just... I just don't see him doing it. Yeah, I think it will be an interesting fight based on the story around that. But I think Oliver has gotten a lot better, too. And I'm really starting to get concerned over the amount of damage that Holloway has taken. And now I'm kind of curious to see when that fight was, because I remember being excited when it was booked. And I remember watching it. And looking at the way it played out, I was like, that's really all we got. So they fought back in 2015, yeah, I was right, about six years ago, and it went less than two minutes because um, Oliveira had an injury to his throat. Uh, what else stood out from Saturday's card for you? Uh, well, the main thing, I mean, what it, once again, uh, even though he lost, you have to give um, Mr. Rodriguez his fair share of praise for his improvement. Unlike a lot of people, he uh, he did improve. His his defense is slightly better. His footwork, his activity is improved. He he counters right away instead of just waiting for a big moment to explode. He set his shot up shots up a little bit better. They weren't great, but he shot he set his shot up, shots a little bit better. His grappling is still terrible. His wrestling is still terrible. But he did he did show he's trending in the right direction. Um, he's still young enough and athletic enough to make a a run for a title if he approaches this right and stays on the right path. Um, as far as other things I saw in there, uh, Cynthia Calvillo's loss to Andrea Lee was particularly damning because um, Andrea Lee is not a big puncher. She's a volume puncher, and volume matters, but that's attrition. That's damage through attrition. Um, Cynthia Calvillo got stopped by Andrea Lee, and it looked like something was wrong with her. I don't know if it's to the body, but she seemed to be reacting very badly to the, to the punishment, and I'm not sure if she got hurt in camp, but one of my concerns was she had just gotten beaten up by Jessica Andrade like what a month ago two months ago couldn't have been that long ago but she yeah. took kind of a she took a beating against Jessica Andrade and I wasn't sure that she was mentally recovered or physically recovered and if she was I felt she could win this fight because Andreas Lee has lost to multiple grapplers and wrestlers Lauren Murphy Roxy Modafari the list goes on and she's not particularly super physical so I felt that Calvillo could control her with the boxing, get in on her, take her down, and maybe work her over a decision. Um, but that was if Calvillo was 100%. That was if Calvillo was locked in 100%. I don't think she was physically 100% or locked in. She seemed off. She seemed to step slow. She seemed like she couldn't take any punches, and she didn't seem like she had any physicality. She couldn't even hold clinches against Andrea Lee. So that's a really great win for Andrea Lee. She now is in the sweepstakes to fight Valentina, and she finished Valentina's sister. So the way Valentina's cleaning out that division is like how Mighty Mouse did before her. 
So Mighty Mouse would get a new, t- uh, you, could, you could challenge Mighty Mouse after two fights because he's just wiping everybody out. She has a legit argument to call for Valentina. I beat your sister. I beat this other contender. Andrade's already lost. Chukagan's not getting another shot. Jessica Eyes nowhere near another shot. Liz Carmouche is another division. Andrea Lee could probably challenge for a title off of these two. She wins one more. She's got to be, be the leader in the clubhouse for a title fight against, um, against Valentina. It's interesting because if you look at Calvillo's record, you know, she was undefeated when she came into the UFC. She won three straight. Yep, she won three straight in the UFC, beating Joanne Calderwood, who is a title, um, basically in the title contention conversations. She dropped that fight to Carla as far as the wins two more, has a draw with Marina Rodriguez, who's another fighter in title contention, then beats Jessica I after she came off of a, a title shot, but now she's dropped three straight at, and she's 34. And we know that fighters tend to start to decline around 34 and 35. Do we think we've seen the best of her? Probably have. She was never a great athlete in the first place, never blessed with huge punching power. Uh, she just had a very set skill set and an identity as a fighter that allowed her. She was more of an active counter puncher. She's actually improved her boxing a little bit, but she doesn't have the power just to wipe girls out. She's never been super physically punishing where she can just throw girls around. And you move her up a weight class and some of those physical advantages go away even more so. I mean, Kayla Chugang was able to defend takedowns, fight her off in clinches and back her up with strikes. Jessica Andrade just ran over. And Andrea Lee, who is one of the lightest hitting fighters in the world, stopped her and stopped her pretty easily. So she might be really be on her way out she has nothing to be ashamed of she she was close to a title she had beat some big names she was on a run and had a legitimate um ranking as a fighter but i don't unless she makes a huge advancement skill wise and i don't know if that's going to happen at this age she doesn't have the durability or physicality to go on any sort of big run i mean like she's already lost three three fights in a row she'd have to win at least three more just to even be considered now i know that goes against what i said because i'm like well andrew lee should be up for a title fight but if you look at the people Lauren Murphy beat on the way to her title fight, a uh, loss over a three, loss, a win over Calvillo on a three fight losing streak is still better than 90% of what Lauren Murphy did to get her fight. Good stuff there, sir. Um, looking at, for me, what stood out for me was um, Sonia Donald picking up a, a win over, over Julio Arce. Uh, Arce was one of the first individuals I interviewed for MMA ratings years ago, and he was on a pretty good run, but he got stopped, I think, by a head kick um, on Saturday. He got stopped by yep, head kicking and punches. I'm really interested in what they do with Song Yudong know, next. He, they got him sitting at number 14 now, which I think is a little low looking at what he's done with his uh, resume so far. But I'm interested in seeing what they do with him next. He's twenty only he's still only twenty-three years old and he's out there training with those team alpha little guys and, and he takes a lot of damage sometimes it seems like, but he finds out a way to win. I mean he is he's four, five, six, seven, he's seven, one and one in the UFC so far. Because I still think fourteen is kinda of low for him. But yep, yep, that's my only concern about him. Will he will he hold up for when he finally gets into that elite competition? Like the Korean super boy was in war after war after war then when he finally started getting up he had like one fight with a league guy and then he just started getting beat up left and right same thing with mike perry he beat up war 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 he finally gets the elite level he was elite for like a couple of fights and then he just started losing and looking worse every time because the uh, the world class in him had been beaten out 
And Yadong takes a lot, like all his fights are like potential fight of the night type fights. And you can't you can't maintain that, especially if you're at a camp like Alpha Male. You know what kind of sparring sessions they're having. So it's like you're burning it at both ends. So once it goes, once it goes, it's going to go badly. Not just durability-wise, but you beat the speed and explosiveness out of yourself. And if you're not explosive and fast at this weight class, you can't compete. Your, your chin will really get tested. But by that point, his chin will already be gone as well. So it's that's my concern. Will they move him up fast enough for him to benefit from the physical tools he has? If he's at 14, he's got at least another four, three, four fights. And they're going to be against increasingly difficult guys, which means he's going to be taking increasingly le- higher levels of punishment before he even gets to that top 10-ish top for a person. Yeah, if, if I was in his corner, I would, I would be calling out um, Marlon Morales, who's sitting at number nine. Right? That's a good pick. I, I, that's I think a that's pick. a winnable fight, and he could probably put on a show with that and get um, pushed into the top ten. Um, if he gets he gets the first round, he probably wins that fight for sure. Definitely, definitely that. So let's move on and let's talk about um, some other action or what um, other news coming out this week. We're going to move into boxing. Before going back to UFC for this weekend, but I want to talk about the Terrence Crawford Sean Porter fight. Was there scheduled to fight on Saturday? Why should um, boxing fans be interested in this contest? Well, the main reason is everybody's been told basically that uh, Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence are the best two fighters in the weight class, possibly two pound for pound entrance. There's an argument against that for both guys, but ultimately that's what's been told. That's what's been sold as. Terrence Crawford has not faced any elite guy at 47. He fought the Mean Machine, Elgowskis. He fought Benavidez. He fought Kell Brook and, and uh, Amir Khan, but they were elite welterweights like eight years ago. When he fought them, they didn't have anything left for him. So Sean Porter is going to be the first elite welterweight he faced as far as athleticism and as far as accomplishment. Sean Porter is a former champion. Uh, might even be a two-time former champion. He's beaten Danny Garcia. He lost to Keith Thurman, but gave him a really good fight. He lost to Errol Spence, but gave him a really good fight. And he's beaten pretty much everybody else in between. So he's as close as you can be to elite with multiple losses on his record. But he's only lost to really the best guys in division. So this is going to be the chance where we see is Terrence Crawford, what he's been sold as, is this technical boxer with a mean streak who knocks people out, or has it been oversold because he's been knocking out guys whose chin is gone and you no longer have the awareness or the physical talent to hold court with him in a ring. As far as a Porter, on his side, he's always a good fight. He really hasn't ever been in a bad fight, not not in a long time. His fight against Spence was good. His fight against Garcia was good. fight against Thurman was good. fight against Ugas was a little awkward, but once again, it was still good. fight against Kell Brook was good. He, he really hasn't been in a lot of bad fights. And he's got the size and strength to where Crawford likes to walk people down and physically bully them and break them down and intimidate them. And I've never seen anybody really break Sean Porter down or physically intimidate him. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Crawford when he can't do the things he wants to do as as often or at all. And that's what makes the fight interesting because you're going to see Crawford against a real challenge, a guy who you know how good he is. You know where he ranks. And this is Crawford's chance to show, hey, I'm just as good as Spence. I'm just as good as better. Let me get rid of this guy. But if he loses to him, a lot of Crawford's run at 47. People aren't going to buy it. If he beats Porter and does it in an impressive fashion, it's just going to fan the fires for him to get another PBC fighter or hopefully get Spence right away. 
Who do you think comes out the winner? I probably have to say Crawford. Um, he's the better boxer. He's a better technical boxer by far. Um, and the, yeah, he's a better technical boxer. He's he can he can he can fight from both stances. He's got the better offensive repertoire. I don't think he's the greatest defensive fighter, but I definitely think he's better than uh, Sean Porter. Porter's to me has never been hard to hit. He's more hard to hit because guys don't want to open up because he's so strong. He can lean and and bully them and tie them up and wear them down. Um, so Crawford, so I, I'm going to say it's Crawford. My big, my only concern is I don't know how Crawford responds when he can't physically take charge of a fight. Almost all his fights from 135 to 147, he's been the bigger, stronger, more durable, more powerful guy. He'll probably be the harder hitter against Porter. I don't know that he's stronger. I don't know that he's in better condition because he hasn't really been physically pushed. Like skill-wise, speed-wise, someone's flustered him, but physically he had to grind it out and push. Like if you grapple somebody, there could be a guy who's better technique than you, a guy who's a better athlete than you. But that's different than a guy who can match your strength and physically make you have to work out of positions, make you have to work, not just technically, but physically. You've got the right position, but he's physically strong enough where you have to like push him down and hold him down. Because you're in the right spot technically, but he can match you physically. So the technique has to have some horsepower behind it. Crawford hasn't been in a tough fight in years. And he hasn't had to work in a tough fight in years. So I don't know what happens to him when he hits a guy and he doesn't go away. Or when a guy ties up with him and he tries to push and the guy pushes back. But Crawford's been a winner. He's got a mean streak. And he seems to be hungry for the best. Um, I, I have to favor Crawford. Just he's... Longer resume, better resume, probably overall better skill set. Um, as far as the intangibles, I don't know because his intangibles have not been tested in the way they're going to be tested in a very long time. Good stuff there, sir. Um, that was going to be the main boxing news that we talked about before I happened to hop on Instagram before our call today. And we see that Canelo Alvarez, he just doesn't rest. Can you scoot over a little bit? I can still only see like this part of your face. Um, Canelo Alvarez doesn't rest. He is coming off. I have to half my face in because I don't want the women MMA fans to go nuts. So I'm only giving them a little bit. I can't give them the whole thing. Yeah, give them the whole thing. All right, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, we're going to clip that out for sure. But um, yeah, Canelo Alvarez doesn't rest. He's coming off of, of, of a victory um, over Caleb Plant two weeks ago, and his next fight announcement is already out there. He is fighting or planning to fight uh, Ilguna Jr. Jr. Makabu for the Cruiserweight Championship. Now, there's been some changes around Cruiserweight from a weight limit standpoint. I'm not sure. I haven't seen an official statement on if the fight would be at 190 or 200, but he's never fought in that weight class before. He's looking to um, take what could be his fifth um, division title what I mean, who who is this guy? Like he just doesn't give two shits about any like anything stopping him in his quest to be the greatest boxer of all time. What are your thoughts about this potential fight here, and and how do you think it goes if it does come down to that fight happening? Well, the thing about Canelo that makes him special is the thing that made Oscar De La Hoya special. Oscar De La Hoya fought a very tough line of opponents. And he didn't have to because he's the money guy. He could pick and choose as he wanted. But for the most part throughout his career, he was picking guys who had been champions, who were very good fighters, if not elite. Even when they were a little bit past their prime, they were still head and shoulders above the majority of other fighters. Even if it was an undersized fighter, it was an undersized fighter who was still performing at a fairly high level. If you look through his resume, it's 
former champion, current champion, guys who won championships after him. You just look at it. All the people, there's names. When you're the money guy, you don't have to take the best fights. But yeah, they'll make you the most money, but you can make tons and tons of money fighting the second best guy or dangerous but limited guy. To a degree, that's what Floyd Mayweather did when he fought Miguel Cotto, a faded Miguel Cotto. Yeah, Floyd's older, but once again, he didn't fight him when he was dangerous. He fought Victor, Victor uh, I can't think of his name. Either way, sorry. But he fought this one dude. Everybody don't know who I'm talking about. But that guy was young. He wasn't really, there you go. He wasn't, he wasn't seasoned. He was known as kind of a quitter. He was a guy who had mental issues as far as his game. When he fought Marcus, Marcus Maidana, he was a tough fighter, but he was really considered world-class until he went 12 hard rounds with Floyd. He was considered a fairly one-dimensional bra- brawler who had gotten beaten by Amir Khan. He wasn't searching out the biggest and best guys who were ahead of him. In the case of Canelo, everybody keeps saying that he's picking guys, but if you look through his resume, Austin Trout was a champion. Um, Miguel Cotto was a champion. Golovkin, champion. Danny Jacobs was a champion, former champion, multiple-time champion. Um, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. was a former champion. Who else did he fight? Um, Caleb Plant, champion. BJ Saunders, champion. Kovalev, champion, even though he was past his prime. Still a guy who had won back a title in impressive fashion and was a champion. He was fighting all these high-ranked fighters and people who were champions, and that means something. He keeps looking for new challenges. And make no mistake, this guy he's picking he sees something in him. He sees it that it's a safer fight for him. He's not just taking the toughest guy cruiserweight, but the fact of the matter is when you move of that kind of weight class, you have to wonder when it starts becoming too much for him because a lot of what Canelo's done recently hasn't been so much boxing, outboxing guys. It's been him physically walking guys down and breaking them down. He outboxed, he, let's say he outboxed Gennady, Golovkin in the first fight, which I still think was a loss for him, but he, he boxed into a draw. In the second fight, Gennady was Golovkin was boxing him. He was walking Golovkin down. In his fight against Kovalev, Kovalev was boxing him at distance, using his jab, long right hand, jab, stay away, move around, turn him to win rounds. Canelo was trying to break him down with power shots to the body, power shots to the head, body head combinations. Erislandi Laura was outboxing him. So Canelo started walking him down and punishing to the body, then throwing body head combinations. Another, another top guy he beat. In the case of Caleb Plant, a guy who was a slick, mobile boxer who had some length, what was he done? He outboxed him in spots, had Canelo missing, sticking his jab, increasing the distance, and slowly Canelo started breaking him down to the body, backing him up to the cage, excuse me, cage, the ring ropes, and making him fight. And that's where he beat him. He outfought him. He broke him down. He bullied him. He walked. He, 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 he broke him down over the, the, the distance. Against this guy, I don't know if that's going to work. So it's curious to see if Canelo goes back to still trying to walk a guy down or is he going to start being more of a heavy counter puncher and being slick you know duck the jab body come over the top fake the jab come over with the right hand is he going to be more slick more technical more mobile or is he going to continue this trend of where he's being defensively safe but looking to land heavy shots and break a guy down because at some point the weight becomes too much and you don't have the physicality to hold a guy against the ropes. You can't wear on him the same way because he's much bigger than you. You sure as hell can't exchange with him like that. And I'm sure this guy isn't a killer puncher. There's a reason why they picked him. But at a certain point, even at higher weight classes, the guy who might not be a killer puncher for a cruiserweight, when you're fighting a guy who's coming up from 168 and only fought at 175 once, their power might be a difference maker. So I'm interested to see how he approaches this fight because I can't imagine him just bullying and walking this guy down. I mean, there's a limit to that at some point. There's got to be some kind of limit to it at some point. You didn't see it against Caleb Plant because Caleb Plant 
isn't really a guy who's a physical fighter and he's never really faced a guy who could pressure him because he's always been so much better than the guys he's faced. Canelo will be a better fighter than this guy, but at some point, size, weight, and strength play a part in it. We saw that with Fury against Wilder. Chocolate, be quiet. So question for you there. How dangerous of a fight is this for um, Canelo, especially if, he, if it's at 200 pounds? What do you think he'll look like that heavy? I think his last fight was at, what, 178? Uh, last fight was uh, actually 168. 168, yeah. So how that's, that's 32 pounds. How do you think he'll look at 200 pounds, 190? And do you think that this is a very dangerous fight for him? I think any fight when you go to certain that that much of a jump is dangerous because like I said, he likes to walk guys down. I don't know that he can do that. I don't know if he can win these exchanges. Even if the guy's not a big puncher at some point, he's used to taking punches from guys 20 to 30 pounds heavier than you. You're used to taking punches from guys 20 to 30 pounds lighter. If I'm anything, I'm if I'm him, I'm not going up that full weight. I'm trying to keep as much as a cardio and mobility advantages I have because I can't imagine him physically just pushing this guy around for 12 rounds. I can't imagine him winning every exchange for 12 rounds against a guy who's probably going to come in weighing at least 25 pounds heavier than him. It just doesn't make any sense. I would try and be technical and deliberate what I'm doing, make sure I could keep a high pace because I, I don't see him just walking him down. He could walk him down to spots if he maybe after he hurts him or exhausts him, but I can't see him just doing that from beginning to end. It would just, it would amaze me. And I don't know a lot about this fight. I have to do some research, but just with the weight difference in and of itself should be enough to eliminate a lot of what he likes to do, or at least make him have to put a cap on it as far as how relentless he is in pressuring a guy. Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing how this fight looks. I'm really interested to see if how he manages that weight um, differential. I, I think that that's going to be like really a story heading into this fight, and that's kind of that's kind of what has caught my attention the most as we look forward to that. One thing I do like is that everybody's been waiting on the Canelo ship to come in. Caleb Plant's a good fighter. He defended his belt, but he had never faced any real challenges. It's like he was trying to navigate them so he could get Canelo in a position where he could get that big payday. I'm not saying he's scared of other guys, but he didn't. He could have really stamped his, his ticket to fight Canelo by fighting Charlo, fighting uh, Benavidez. He didn't do that. Benavidez could have stamped his ticket, or Charlo could have stamped his ticket by fighting one another. That would have been excitement, and that would have kind of forced Canelo's hand or put them above Caleb Plant. Caleb Plant. But nobody, everybody's just navigating, waiting around, sitting on their belts, hoping that Canelo chooses them. By moving up in a weight class, Canelo's actually doing a couple things. One, all those belts he won, you know, I don't think he's, he can't keep them. He's going to be competing unless they make a deal. So that means now these guys at 168 are going to have to fight for these belts and see if they can get them, and they're going to have to fight each other. Secondly, if Golovkin was waiting for that rematch with Canelo, he ain't coming back down to 160. That ain't never happening now. So now Golovkin's going to have to start taking on some of these hungrier, young middleweights because there's no money fight for him at 160. He's going to have to fight whoever the biggest name or biggest threat is there because there's no real money fight. Outside of Canelo coming back, there's no money fight. And, and unless he's planning on moving up to 168, there's really nothing that really appeals. So he's going to have to spent his last couple of years fighting or he's got to move up to fight somebody to to get some of that cachet back. But essentially in two different weight classes, things are going to start opening up because Canelo's no longer 
or actually even in light heavyweight, there's guys who are trying to navigate for a Canelo fight. So in three weight classes, guys are going to have to start getting back to work because they're no longer going to just be able to sit on the sideline and say, I'll wait for Canelo, I'll wait for Canelo. Now he's uh, he's going to cruise away. And we don't know if he's ever how low he's ever coming back again. So now y'all have to go do your jobs and make interest in yourself instead of trying to hook onto the interest he's made by challenging him. That's all they're doing. Let me call out Canelo. Dude, make your own interest. Beat some top five guys and, and then you can make you can say it with your chest. But beating up, you know, a 41-year-old former title title challenger in the early 2000s doesn't do anything. So now these guys have to go create their own legacy, create their own interests because he's no longer there for them to wait for. Good breakdown, as, as always, sir. I really appreciate your thoughts, sir. I'm looking forward to seeing what you see in Makabu as well from a threat assessment when we get to that as the fight gets closer. It's looking at it's going to be in May of next year, no saying where, but usually when it's a Mexican fighter in May, those fights tend to happen around Cinco de Mayo in New York. Hopefully that's the case, but um, we'll see. I uh, want to talk about UFC Fight Night 198, which is this Saturday, and it's headlined by Misha Tate and Ketlin Vieira. And I kind of this fight flew under the radar to me. Um, I wasn't really kind of paying any full attention to it, and it's important because at bantamweight, um, Ketlin's sitting at seven, Misha's at eight, and I think this is a real test to see what what version of Misha Tate are, are, are we getting now? Are we getting the championship form version of her, or are we getting like the Veterans tour on her. Um, she's here to, you know, basically make as much money as possible on, on on her way out. What do you think? What are your thoughts about this fight here? And, and this is a is it? This should be a decent main event, right? Uh, it should be. I mean, the, the thing about the women's division is, I'm um, sorry, the bantamweight division is super thin. I mean, let's face it. Misha, I think uh, Marianne Renault was still a top ten ranked uh, bantamweight, if I recall correctly. And she was like on a three-fight losing streak. If yeah, I think if she I, was in the top fifteen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or even top fifteen. But how are you in the top fifteen with a three-fight losing streak? I mean, that shouldn't that shouldn't really be possible. And she wasn't losing to the best in the division. She was losing to people who were some higher up, some lower up. Um, the biggest thing, Misha Tate has a chance of winning the bantamweight division. It's still super thin. I mean, Holly Holm, Amanda Nunes were close to the top when she was there. Raquel Pennington was fairly close to the top when she's there. Has much changed with that division since she's left? Like, really? No, still sitting at two. Um, Jermaine Norandini's at one. Julianne Pena's at four. I mean, the only thing that's really different is, you know, Aspen Ladd's around. Caitlin Vieira's around. Um, There's some younger names. Macy Chisholm. uh, I mean, you think about it. Sarah McMahon is still in the top 15, top 13, top 10, somewhere around there. She's actually number Holly Holm, still top 10. Raquel Pennington, still in that top 10 to 13. Amanda Nunes is now the best, but she's still considered in the top. I mean, the same people who were there when she was there, except for, you know, Jessica I and Liz Carbucci dropped weight classes. But the most majority, most of them who were there when she was on top are still there. You know, Jessica Pena's moved up. Juliana Pena's moved up. But for the most part, it's still the same people. Some people retire, but for the most part, it's the same people. There's so, some new names in here. Like, um, yeah, there, there are, but the best people are still people who were the best when she was there. Nunez, home. So, so if I'm looking at the top five, I think the only two names that are different are Aspen Ladd and Irene Aldana. Yeah, everybody else. Is the same. I mean, the, the, the division hasn't moved that much further ahead as far as actual skill sets, if we're being honest. They just haven't. It, it, the girls aren't so done. You, 
when you, when Misha Tate came back, nobody was saying, oh, she might have been left behind because none of the Bantamweights outside of Amanda Nunes have done anything that says that anybody's been left, that they've left anybody behind. The fights are still fairly competitive. Jermaine Devandere still isn't a great grappler, but she somehow had Amanda Nunes holding on for dear life at one point. It's it pretty much the same division. Misha Tate is still one of the more experienced fighters who got one of the better resumes and who actually has the ability to make adjustments between rounds and inside of rounds. That's something the large majority of these girls don't have. More importantly, Misha Tate's still one of the most prepared and highest IQ fighters in the Bantamweight. The issue is going to be what happens when she has to take some punishment or when she's in a bad spot because a lot of her success was she could she would take abuse, but then she'd be able to find her way through it and start making her reads and making her adjustments. If she can no longer take that abuse, that's where the questions start coming in about who she is and how she is. Um, Vera's a tough fighter. She's a strong fighter. She's a durable fighter, but she's tremendously low IQ. I mean, she's not Courtney Casey bad or Random Marcus bad, but she ain't much better, man. I mean, she got out wrestled by Yana Kuniskaya. She let Yana Kuniskaya take her down and win rounds on her, all because she was trying to grapple with her instead of just throwing her off and getting up and beating her up on the feet. I, I have no idea why she just engaged in that. And Yana Kuniskaya isn't a physical fighter. She's not particularly strong. She's not dynamic. But for some reason, Caitlin Vera thought it'd be better to exchange on the ground and throw up submissions and get on her feet and beat the hell out of her like she was doing the first round. Blew my mind. Against Irina Aldana, she's getting into heavy exchanges with a much superior striker when she's actually as as good or better athlete, physically stronger, and a grappler. She's trying to get in a firefight instead of looking for takedowns and clinches to wear on this big, long, mobile striker. It's mistakes like that which make me question her ability to beat someone like Tate because she only seems to have so many ideas. So if Tate can navigate the physicality and the athleticism, Tate's just going to make reads and then start walking her down. Because Ketlin Vera only has, she's improved her striking, but ultimately she's a very much an attribute fighter and she only has so many tricks, she only has so many setups. She runs out of ideas really quick because the minute someone makes an adjustment, I've never seen her make a second adjustment. It's her game plan either works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, so far I haven't seen her have anything else. I've seen Misha Tate try game plan and it not work. I've seen her getting beat pillar to post and around and figure it out. I've seen her almost get finished and come back and finish someone. I've never seen that from Ketlin. The minute the fight goes bad, she loses. The minute she's in a position to lose, she loses. The minute she's in a position to win, she just runs away with it. But she's never really worked her way out of really tough spots. I guess you could say against Sarah McMahon, but you know what Sarah McMahon does when she wrestles you. That's it. She doesn't really submit you or really punish you. She just kind of wrestles you. And if you can hang on long enough, she'll make a mistake. Misha Tate's the kind of fighter that if you let her hang around long enough, she'll find the mistake in your game. So I'm going to favor Tate off experience and IQ. Um, I don't know what kind of punishment she can take. And I know she's not going to have the fight completely her way like she did against um, Mary Renault. For the most part, she had, she had that fight that way. And that is not going to exist in this fight. But if she can neutralize that or navigate it, she should win, possibly by stoppage, but at least by decision, hopefully by decision. If she wins, does she get a title shot? I can't imagine so. I mean, when uh, Caitlin Vera and Marion Renault enough to get title shots nowadays, once again, Amanda Nunes has cleared out the division. So maybe that works. But if I'm her, I wouldn't take that title fight. I'd be trying to fight. She needs to be sharp. She's not at her best. And she's only going to get one more shot at this. And personally, I think I'm... You know what? She might, because even if Nunes beats Pena, definitely if Pena beats Nunes, oh, you know she's going to want that fight. 
But even if Nunes beats Pena, the fact of the matter is, I think when she goes down to 35, she's physically compromised. She's not the same fighter. She doesn't have the same power. She doesn't take shots the same. Her wrestling and her, her ground game, the skill's still there, but she's not as physically dominant. And that Durandamy fight is a chief example, because I know Durandamy got better. She didn't get that much better. She easily handled Durandamy the first couple times. And all of a sudden, she could barely get her down. Every time Durandamy touched her, she was on skates. And I think at one point, Durandamy didn't come super close, but she got closer than she should have ever gotten with a triangle. against a man. I mean, imagine Amanda Nunes got triangled by Durandamy. She'd have to quit the sport. It's like getting submitted by Conor McGregor. No, man, it's over for you. I'm never mentioning you as a contender. You need to retire, man. Um, but I, I think she might, but I really feel like she needs at least another fight. She needs to be as sharp as she possibly can be. And she's in this for a title fight and money. So she's going to pick the path of least resistance that is going to prepare her to to fight Nunes. Because right now, she'll have, if she put, wins two fights in a row, she'll have all the momentum behind her. And after another six months of having to make the weight class, Nunes might be vulnerable. Nunes, if she can get through the first round, maybe she has some for Nunes. To be honest, I think if she would have gotten through the first round the first time with Nunes, she would have beaten her. If I think she lost in the first round, if I recall correctly. But um, yeah, I, I think she needs at least one more fight. I don't know how sharp she is, and she's got to be able to take punishment. Because against Nunes, she is going to get touched more than once. Yeah, I, I think that she should. That Holly Holmgren match is still sitting out there, and people kind of been clamoring about that. I think I don't think that that's the right fight. Yeah. Tate, but Irene Aldania, Aspen Ladd, I think she can beat Aspen Ladd. Um, at, at, at Aldania. Say it again. I think she can beat Aldania too. Yeah, and she's sitting at number three, so those those could be some good options there. Um, what else on this card stands out for you for Saturday? Um, always interested to see Michael Ch- Michael Kasayich. How do you say the name Kasayich? Yeah, yeah. yeah think think Yeah. He, he's always a uh, he's kind of reinvented himself at welterweight. I mean, he hasn't doesn't have like a lot of signature wins at welterweight, but he's moved up and he's been dominant if nothing else. He had the win against Condit, which was still a good win if you look back on it. Sanchez, eh, the less said about that, the better. But Rafael Desanos, Carlos Condit, Neil Magny aren't elite level wins, but they are good wins against guys who were serviceable at welterweight. Now we need to see exactly who he is he obviously wasn't enough against um luke he lost in submission which wasn't the greatest of looks but um we need to see him against an escalating opponent and see how far he's gone because right now he's gotten by on his size and his grappling we already know he could grapple we already know he's big the question is does he have enough of a rounded out skill set to where when he can impose his will with his size and his grappling he has enough to navigate rough spots or to create openings to get to the spots he needs to. He didn't have that against Luque. He wasn't able to do against Luque. And even the fights against Magni and Dos Anjos and Condit, they were fairly dominating wins, but they didn't they didn't leave the impression that I think he wanted to leave, that he's some kind of unstoppable force. And if he's not an unstoppable force at this weight class, I'm not quite sure how far he goes because there's too many guys who can match his size and have at least good enough grappling skills where – He's not going to have any easy submissions or even easy escapes out of positions. So I'm hoping to see a little bit more growth as far as the transitions between ranges and a little bit more depth and structure to his his overall striking, which I still think is is a hole in his game. Yeah, I saw an interesting suggestion that he be the next guy to fight um, Hazmat and Shimeyev, which was an interesting idea. 
to me. Um, I think that his submissions definitely will be a threat. And I'm not sure how the overall fight would play out. He's looked good at 170, you know, since stopping the weight cut to 155. He certainly looked much better at 170 pounds. But I'm always interested in seeing how he continues to um, evolve because he has looked better until he got caught in that um, Luke Bravo choke. I, I think Chimea's win, his last win, was better than any win that um, Kiseya's had at welterweight. Because that was a guy who was a big, strong guy. I don't know that Kiseya could have, Kiesa, excuse me, could have taken him down and just finished him like that. I don't know that he's physically, athletically overwhelming like that. That's that's what my question is. Skill-wise, I, I see where the matchup could be tough. But Kazmat seems like he's he's very big for the weight class. He hits pretty hard. And physically, he just dominates guys. Kiseya has had a size advantage. What does he do when his size advantage is gone? Is he strong enough to slow Kazmat down or back him off? Especially on the feet. I, I've never seen anything on the feet that tells me he could do that. So I'm, I'm actually concerned myself, you know, because in my opinion, the fight goes similar to all his fights. He runs up on him, hits him with some shots, takes him down, and just overwhelms him. Not because he's so much better skill-wise, but he's really a – he was actually a fairly big middleweight who's now a huge welterweight. So one of the one of Michael's best advantages, his length and his size, don't exist against this guy. And I've never, I don't know what he looks like when he. Well, actually, I do know what he looks like when he doesn't have a dramatic physical advantage, and it's not great. My only argument is that I think that Michael Pearson has a win over Neil Magny, who also beat Lee Jingli and the same guy who has my beat, and and yeah. Michael Pearson basically dominated Neil Magny. I think that that's. That's probably his his best win. I think that's better than the wins that Chimeyev has has. And there's a lot of talk about Neil Magny being the guy to fight him next, which I think will be a, a good bout for him. Uh, one thing else I want to talk about on this: they're having a fight between Luma Lugboni and, and Lupita Lupi Godinez. Lupi Godinez is this going to be like her third fight in like a month? It's her third fight in seven weeks, I think. Um, she yeah. fought twice in October. She fought the 6th, the 19th, and now she's fighting now. Yeah, um, I, I understand that people need... This is the problem I have with MMA fighters. They need to make the money. They don't get paid enough to develop. My problem is it's, she's going to have the same problem that Donald Cerrone has, but she doesn't have any of the cachet Donald Cerrone has, and I don't know that she has the talent. For you to become good at anything, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, boxing, MMA... You have to have a certain amount of time focused on development of skills, rounding out of skills, expansion, changing your perspective on the game, et cetera, et cetera, right? If she's constantly taking these fights, how is she improving her craft? Because she is not a great athlete. She's not a great physical force. She's not a great technician in any area. She's just not. How does she get further along in that if she's constantly taking fight after fight after fight after fight? It's going to be very hard to do so. And while she'll be making money on the short term and maybe increasing her her name value, which is which is impressive, I don't know how it helps her as a fighter long term because I see very harsh limitations for her physically. So if she's not making one, two, three steps forwards technically, I don't know that she's in the UFC a year or two years from now because I don't know that she's progressing at the rate she needs to to be anything more than a mid-card type fighter because her opponent is another fairly low-ranked fighter who's the UFC is invested in, but who isn't really coming to her prime either? So if she loses to her, then what? You know, it, it's she's she's clearly shown she has limits. She clearly shows she has some IQ issues, and instead of addressing those issues, she's taking another fight. Yes, she'll be in shape. Yes, she'll be sharp. 
that this can't possibly be the best representation of herself. And by the time she has time to take take steps to improve herself skill-wise, she might be out of the UFC and have to fight her way all the way back into it. So as a fighter, I get what she's doing. And business-wise, it's great. But as far as the business of being a fighter and developing your skill set, it sets a really bad precedent because a lot of women, female fighters, are already behind the curve technically. Yeah, the elite ones. I'm not talking about the elite ones. I'm talking about everybody else. They're already behind the curve. Taking a bunch of short notice fights doesn't do much to help you get ahead of that curve. It, you get a big win. Now you get thrown to the wolves. They beat the hell out of you. And now you're out of the UFC two or three months later. Look at Hannah Cypher. She took a lot of fights real quick. Where is she at? Gone. Ring. Gone. You know, look at uh, the girl who used to be with Ronda Rousey. She came off a of tough. She was inexperienced. Kept throwing her in. She just kept getting the hell beat out of her. Soon yes, she, yeah, she, it, they don't, the UFC is not for development. That's on your camp and that's on the fighter. So they're going to give you every opportunity to fight because they're a fighting promotion. It's your job to give your fighter fights that can win or give your fighter the time and resources necessary to improve so that they can win those fights. This fight, I guess, is winnable and it should be exciting, but I think she needs a lot less exciting fights and a lot more fight skills so that she, she can make an extended run. And even if she wins this fight, I can't see her going on an extended run. I think she loses on Saturday. I mean, Luke Van B is not a, a Luke, what's her name? Luke Bond. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. She's not a bad fighter at all. Um, she's coming off of a two-fight win streak, and she knows how to, I hate to say point score, but she knows how to win fights on um, the scorecards. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting contest, but I don't think Loopy wins on Saturday. If and she can't, she, if she, if she, if she can't, can't do, and she's doing the UFC all these favors, she'll be one and two and um, one and three this year. I keep telling them, stop doing billionaires. The UFC does not see it as a favor. They see it as I gave you an opportunity to get more money, to get another fight, to win, to help you. So I gave you an opportunity. You taking the fight and losing. Just because you took the fight, I don't, I don't owe you anything. I gave you that because if you want it, it do great. It would do great, great good for you. I give you an opportunity. Doing them a favor, I understand what they're trying to do, and you know you guys stay on their good side. But don't think that taking these short notice fights, like when they're like, oh, I saved the card, I saved the event. No, you didn't. To them, you did your job, and you'll get paid for do, doing your job. And if you win, you'll get paid for that. You're not getting paid just for taking a tough fight because if you wouldn't have taken it, we would have found someone else, or you just would have rescheduled it. And that's what people aren't understanding. Like I said, it should be a good fight. She, there's some holes that she can exploit, but athletically, I don't know how she dominates positions. And given the fact that a lot of her takedowns seem to come from clinch-type positions or pressuring against somebody who attacks the legs and is good in clinches with knees and elbows, that seems to be an awfully risky way to go about having to win a fight when you can't strike your way into those clinch exchanges or you can't strike your way legitimately into takedowns because nobody buys Lupe Godinez as a striker, especially not somewhat of, of uh, Luke Boney's background. There's no way she respects her as a striker. That's very true, sir, and I agree with you there. Um, what else are you working on? Uh, I haven't started some new articles sometime soon. I like sent like six articles over, so I'm just waiting for them to come out. But luckily, they're, except for the Pena, Nunez article, none of them really have a timeline. They're kind of, I'm trying to write more stuff that has a, you could drop any time, like the fight about why people fight over certain weight classes. Carolina Kovacavich's decline. You could, you could drop that tomorrow. You could drop that two weeks from now. It, it's just an explanation of what happened. The weight class thing, because why, why do certain people stay in weight classes? Why do certain people avoid certain weight classes? 
that's an explanation. And we'll see that argument time and time again. We can use multiple references or multiple cards for that. So I'm trying to write stuff that has more of a shelf life where you can, you know, bring it up and it'll come back around and you can use it again. And I'm just trying to find my next topic. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think I might go and I might look at, take a look into matchmaking. I think look into matchmaking or maybe look at my, what I, what I think Conor McGregor should do moving forward, something like that. Good stuff, sir. I will, I will be doing my usual continuing to cover uh, pro wrestling as much as possible and MMA in between that. Um, working the fights this weekend, so looking forward to seeing some good stuff there. But other than that, man, we're going to close it out. Any, anything, any last comments? No, man. I uh, enjoy the show as always. Thank you for making time for it. Appreciate it. And thank you for letting me be part of the show, man. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate Mike. I appreciate everybody for just letting me have a forum to uh, you know, share my thoughts, share my opinions, and share my perspective on the sport. So we'll be back next week. Um, thank you, everyone. Stay safe and have a good weekend.